0: and saw the pictures of the devastation in much of the central part of our country from the tornadoes. In one town in Kentucky, there are three churches on the same street and all three of those churches were destroyed. And in those parking lots of those three churches, they've come in and plowed them and they're planning on having three services today in the parking lots of those services. And I'm sure your heart like mine, was broken by the loss. So I would begin by asking you to join me in prayer for these people and their communities. Dear God, we do not understand your ways, but we need your help. We pray for the communities, the individuals, the families of those who have died and of those who are still missing, those who are injured. May you meet each need, the needs that will come for many, many days, weeks, and months from now. Even now, as they are praising you and their service, I pray that you would receive glory from that and you would strengthen their hearts as individuals and as a people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I would let you know that beginning next Sunday, there will be a group from Liberty Bible Church that goes down to help minister to those that are trying to rebuild. If you are interested in being a part of that team, please contact the church uh, this week and we'll get you in touch with the people that'll be going down. Have you ever heard an unexpected song Maybe if you were in those parking lots today, there would be some unexpected songs sung. I'm gonna begin by telling you a story that I've used once before. Some of you will have heard it, I think, but it so illustrates this point. About 15 years ago, when I was a youth pastor, uh, we would take our kids and do service projects and go to different people's houses and do whatever they asked us to do. And we got a request from a senior in our church and asked if we would come to help clean the house of her renter. She was a landlord and the renter lived in the property behind her. And uh, that renter is just overwhelmed and unable to clean herself. And so we said, yes, we'd be glad to come. And eight of us showed up. And when we went in, we found out that this lady was a hoarder. And it was a very dangerous situation. Yeah, you went down these canyon-like aisles papers and boxes and clothing and plastic stacked all around you but we decided to uh, to do this project and I took the boys and we went outside and we were gonna clean the outside and the, the shed and the basement and the girls were to clean inside we told them to, n- to stay out of her uh, bedroom but to clean the living room in the kitchen and an hour into the project I was feeling pretty good about me getting eight kids to come and work and serve God in this difficult position I was feeling a little proud of myself and I went into the house to see how the girls were doing And of course, the piles were so high, I couldn't see any girls, but I heard somebody singing. I remember walking through the aisles in the living room and getting to the kitchen, and here this ninth grade girl had cleared away a little space right in front of the refrigerator, and she was seated on the floor, and she was cleaning mold and rotting food, And as she was doing that, she was singing praises to Jesus. And I was struck with the juxtaposition of this young, innocent, perfectly clean girl in the midst of this absolute filth. And she was not holding her nose and serving as I had been doing. But she was full of joy. And she was having a personal worship service. An unexpected song. I was reminded of that by our text today. Our text today is the Magnificat, Mary's song, and I'll explain why I said that shortly. But first, let us read our text, if you would. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 1. Stand as I read verses 46 through 55. And Mary said, Please be seated. A Carol of Joy. This is sermon number two in a series of the carols of Christmas. Last week we had the carol of Isaiah. Next week we get to Zachariah's song, and then the day after Christmas we will look at the angels' song. As I was reading and studying this carol this week, uh, it led me to ask four questions, and those four questions will provide the framework for our study of this text. The four questions are who, how, why, and what. Who really was Mary, the mother of Jesus? How could Mary possibly express joy at this time? Made no sense to me. And why exactly did she praise God? Were there some objective reasons that Mary had for praising God? And finally, what what did Jesus' birth mean, both to those who were alive at that time and to those of us today? So first question, who really was this Mary, the mother of Jesus? As you know, today there exists a whole theology on Mary. Mariology, Mariolatry, She has become almost mythical, or at least apocryphal to those who follow this. So it's important that we get to the truth about Mary. And I have to tell you, today we will only begin to answer the question because Christmas is still three weeks away, two weeks away, and more information will come. We're first introduced to Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 27. And in that verse we're given two words two descriptions of Mary first of all we're told she was a virgin that is she was a young woman who had not yet had sexual relations and the second word was that she was betrothed our closest word is engaged to a man named Joseph now engagement in that day and that culture was very different from engagement in the United States today you look at the statistics how many engagements in the United States are broken it's not unusual But in that culture, betrothal was a legally binding arrangement that could only be severed by death or divorce. We won't be studying Joseph in this particular series, but if you remember the story of Joseph in Matthew 1, when Joseph finds out that she was pregnant, it says he wanted to divorce her privately because that's what the law was. So Mary is a virgin and she is betrothed. There's nothing about her supposed godly family. There's nothing about her pious habits. There's nothing about her reputation to others. I want you to note that nothing negative is ever said about her, but let's not add to what's there. Mary did not have a perfect family. She did not lead a sinless life. She had no immaculate conception of her own. She was just a normal, God-fearing Jewish teenager. Anything we add to that is just conjecture. And honestly, I fear that if Mary could have known then what would become of her reputation and what history would do to her, she would be heartbroken. So in our text, Mary is visited by an angel. Now, we can only imagine how frightening that would be. Our Christmas cards portray angels as chubby-cheeked cherubs, usually doing manly things like playing harps or sitting on clouds. (laughs) We're told in Luke 2 that the heavenly host was there. The heavenly host is an army. And if you are the leader of an army, you are probably scary. She's visited by this angel and she's told she is favored by God. In fact, twice she's told she's favored by God once she's told she's highly favored by God and that the Lord was with her now she might have argued and she might have said uh, so far there's very little evidence to back that up there angel I come from an inconspicuous family in a tumble-down little village I live in an oppressed nation and we got to verse 29 and it makes sense verse 29 is an understatement it says Mary was greatly troubled yeah I guess she was greatly troubled Notice the angel's next response is, do not fear. Why would he say that? Because she was afraid. And then we come to the shocking verse, verse 31, where the angel looks at her and says, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. If you were a teenage girl and a scary angel, told you you would conceive in your womb and bear a son, would you really hear anything else? The angel goes on with some amazing prophecies. Listen to this. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Whoa, what amazing promises. Unbelievably significant and history transforming. But did they register with Mary? (laughs) Probably not. Because in verse 34, here's what she says. How will this be, since I am a virgin? She's still stuck on the you're going to be pregnant part. The angel Gabriel continues, explains how the Holy Spirit will come upon her, how she will have a son, that son will be called the son of God, and then he tells her about her aunt Elizabeth, who in her old age is also six months pregnant, and ends by saying, nothing is impossible with God, and the angel leaves. Verse 39, we read that Mary arose and in haste goes to visit Elizabeth for three months. To do what? To rejoice with her? Probably. To help her pregnant relative? That makes sense. That's what they would do. Perhaps just to stay out of sight until she figures what to do about her condition. She travels to Elizabeth and in verse 41 we're told when she greets Elizabeth from the door, Elizabeth hears her. The baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy and then these amazing words come. Blessed are you, the mother of my Lord. And now we're going to stop right there because that's where the story stops and the Magnificat starts. If the Magnificat had been written by Mary at the end of her life after she's thought through it all and seen how God has worked, we could understand these profound statements that she makes, but that's not what happened. Mary was just a normal Jewish girl in many ways quite ordinary, just like us. Which is encouraging because that reminds me that God can use us if we're ordinary. Mary was a sinner in need of a Savior. Verse 47, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary is just like us. She needed a Savior. Mary is just like us in that she gets overwhelmed. She was overwhelmed by the news, understandably. There are going to be times when we will be fearful, when we will be overwhelmed, and that's okay. That's human. Mary was still processing things. She was still scared. She... She wanted to get away and sort of be quiet and not be noticed and be careful. And at the same time, we know she wanted to trust God. Do you notice that Mary's never doubting that what the angel said was true? Next week, we're gonna gonna get to Zachariah. Zachariah is a priest his whole life. He's trained as a priest. He's supposed to be in touch with God and the angel comes and speaks to Zachariah and he doesn't believe him. Mary doesn't struggle with that. Mary believes the angel, wants to trust him, but is scared, processing, wants to be quiet. Doesn't that sound a lot like us and our intentions today? So the answer to our first question of who is Mary, Mary was normal, no more, no less. Second question, how could Mary possibly express joy at this time? Now, you may not understand that question without a little explanation of culture. You see, the temptation is to downplay the effect of verse 31. Verse 31 is the verse where the angel says, you will be pregnant. Mary's a teenage girl. To be pregnant when you're not married in that culture labeled you an adulterer. To be an adulterer in that culture gave you a death sentence. You could be killed. That was the prescribed punishment. Now, if the husband, the offended party, was particularly gracious, he could let you live. But if he did, you had to go through a specified public humiliation, an event where the the, The people of the town would come and ridicule you and shame you. Both the man and the woman would lose their reputation. So when the angel says you will be pregnant, her fear, her uncertainty, her anger, her frustration would be nearly impossible for us to know and understand. And so I ask again, Given these facts, how can Mary possibly express joy? Because she didn't have any answers yet. She hadn't even talked to Joseph yet. Chronologically, Joseph was still not visited by the angel. The events of Luke 1 take place before the events of Matthew 1 by about three months. So she does not yet know how Joseph is going to respond. Oh, but she can imagine. With the vivid imagination of a teenage girl, It would not be good the angel visits her she responds how can this be there's a short conversation with the angel and after that initial conversation with the angel her next recorded words in Scripture are the Magnificat the song now granted some time would have had to pass from when the angel left until she visited Elizabeth. She would have had to pack. How long would that take? She would have had to say goodbye to her family and she would have had to travel. We don't know how far that was. So she would have had some time alone, some time to think, some time to process this, but still her response is absolutely amazing. And so I ask one more time, how could she express joy in this way? I'm sure I could not. My only answer, She was looking more at her God than at herself. And boy, that's easy to say and tough to do. You see, if she was looking only at herself, Mary would have had little reason to rejoice. Her life was probably over. If not, at least her reputation was gone. Her husband, probably gone. And if not, his trust of her was gone, or at least damaged. So if she was looking at herself and she was singing a song, I would expect that song to be a song of lament. But if she was looking to God, well, that's very different. Please consider with me, if you will, as she's traveling to Elizabeth and finally playing over in her mind these amazing words that the angel has given. She comes to realize that God has not forgotten his people. He was showing grace to her. The Holy Spirit was going to come upon her. They hadn't heard about the Holy Spirit for 400 years. They hadn't heard about God for 400 years. And God was communicating with her and with Elizabeth and with Zechariah. It had been 400 years since God had communicated with them, not since the time of Malachi. And what a communication. What promises her son would have a throne, he would reign, he would have a kingdom forever especially given the Roman oppression, knowing that God had not forgotten them would be huge news. And then she walks in and is greeted by Elizabeth and with her eyes still on God without even completely understanding what she's saying, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. Blessed. There's a lesson for us here. And that lesson is when we take our eyes off our situation and put our eyes on God. And again, I'm repeating, I know that's tough to do, but when we do that, praise happens naturally. Let me say that again. When we take our eyes off our situation and put our eyes on God, praise happens naturally. Which leads me to my third question. Why did she praise God in this situation? What objective reasons did she have for doing it? Why did she say, my soul magnifies the Lord? Why did she say, all generations will call me blessed? Was it because she was so great? Because she was so wonderful? Because she was gonna be so famous? Well, let's look what the text says, verse 49 and 50. For, because he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. The first reason she had to praise God was for who he is. The beginning of verse 49, he is omnipotent. The middle, end of verse 49, he is holy. The beginning of verse 50, he is merciful. It's as if Mary knew her Old Testament, and guess what? I think she did. Psalm 150 says that throughout history and for all of eternity, we will praise God for who he is and what he's done. Mary got that. So, Mary, who is God? Well, she says, he is omnipotent. Imagine the miraculous power needed to accomplish God's purpose in Mary. And she recognized it. And so she says, he who is mighty, he's omnipotent. Then she goes on, holy is his name. This speaks to God's reputation. When you read about someone's name in the Old Testament, it reads... In a, in a shame and honor culture someone 's name was their reputation. God has a reputation for being holy. What she was saying is, "God, I may not understand if this may not be what I would choose, but I trust what I know about you. You are holy, you are righteous, you are without sin. with you, there is never cause for blame. God is omnipotent, God is holy." Finally, he is merciful. She says his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. God's mercy means he doesn't give us what we deserve. Mary understood that. She was normal, she was sinful, she was average and yet God chose her favored by God. She rejoices that God is merciful. And this God that Mary served is the same God that we serve today. That God is still omnipotent. He is not too weak to handle your present situation. Whatever present situation is, no matter how difficult it is, God can handle it. God is mighty. God is omnipotent. God today is still holy. He is not affected by sin. He is perfect. He is pure. And yes, he's so very different from the world around us that we see. He is so very different from our own personal sin. And in spite of the world around us and our own personal sin, God is still merciful. God does not give us what we deserve. Romans says that our sin deserves punishment. That punishment is called death and hell. But in mercy, God offers us freedom and life. And heaven so Mary would say when I think about who God is I just cannot help but praise God but there's a second reason that Mary praises God and again it's in agreement with Psalm 150 she praises God for what he has done for who he is and for what he has done well let's see what he's done verses 51 through 53 tell us what he's done now, I want you to know up front, all of the actions that are described here are an unexpected reversal of reality we have certain things about the way we think reality runs and, and God is going to, to reverse those. Uh, remember last week, uh, the, the sermon in uh, the, the song of Isaiah, the, the mountains would be cut down, the valleys would be filled in, the crooked would be made straight, uh, the rough places would become a plain, nothing what we expected. Well, well here, God's actions are gonna do that. They're an unexpected reversal of reality. And each of his actions brought on an all encompassing revolution. The first is a moral revolution. It says, verse 51, He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. The proud, they desire to be visible. They want to be in groups so people notice them and are impressed by them and look at them and say, Oh, aren't they great? And He says, No. Uh, They want to be with others. But God says, Nope. The proud in their heart, I will scatter. The first revolution, in the first revolution, God's goal is to change hearts. So, Mary, that Jesus, that Messiah, that baby is inside of you. That baby is going to offer salvation. He's going to start a moral revolution. We'll have more on that next week. Question for us do we allow him to do that? Secondly, we read that he brings on a social revolution. It says, he brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. This is another reversal of what we would think. We have a tendency to raise up the powerful and the rulers and to neglect, even put down the humble. And again, God says, nope. The mighty and the highest in society, they're going to be brought low the humble and the neglected they're going to be raised up God's goal is not just to change hearts but it's also to change society so Mary Jesus the Messiah that baby inside of you he's going to break down classes and status and rankings so that before him we are all equal before God a social revolution do we allow God to do that Thirdly, verse 53, is an economic revolution. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. In our understanding of economy, we do the opposite. The rich are filled with good things and the hungry go away empty. But God says, "Nope. it's the other way around. Those who have will not be satisfied and those who lack what the world values will still be filled In the moral revolution, God's goal was to change hearts. In the social revolution, God's goal was to change society. But in an economic revolution, God's goal is to change our appetites. So Mary, Jesus, this Messiah, this baby that's inside of you, he's gonna show us that true riches are not in money or in things, but this Messiah is going to show you that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. A new economy. Do we allow for that? Now I've got to be really honest here. That Mary saw all of this and spoke it as a teenager is truly amazing. You expect some famous preacher or professor of a theological institution to write stuff like this, not a teenage girl but she got it, and since she did and could understand God and who he was and what he did, she did praise God. And when we understand who God is and what he's done, our response will be the same. Let me say that again. When we really understand who God is and what he's done, our response will be the same. It will be a response of praise. Final question. What exactly did Jesus' birth mean to those in his day? Well, the answer is found in the text. Look at verses 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. To the Jews who were living at that time, the coming of the Messiah meant the fulfillment of the covenant. It meant that all that had been predicted in the Old Testament had come true in a person, Jesus. God will help his servant Israel. God will remember his mercies. God will be remembering the promises to the fathers, especially to Abraham. And God will remember his promises to us, his offspring. It is no overstatement that to Mary and her Jewish contemporaries, the birth of this baby should have been the answer to all of their hopes. But sadly, many missed it. In fact, most missed it. What does the birth of baby 2000 years ago mean to us today? Well, I believe the answer is much the same for us as it was for Mary only not Jewish. I believe that the birth of the baby in that manger is the hope For today's fears and I don't know what your fears are. I believe that the birth of that baby is the answer to today's questions but I don't know what your questions are. I believe that the birth of that baby is the light we need when all around us is darkness. I believe that the birth of that baby is life when all we see is death. And sadly, many people on earth will miss that too. And some of us in this room will miss that. My prayer this morning is that you will not miss that. That you will understand what the birth of that baby means. And you will grab hold of it. And when you have not missed it, you will look at God's gift rather than our own troubles. And when we look at God's gift, our only response will be, like Mary, one of praise. Let us pray. Dear God, our heart wants to serve you. We want to praise you. Forgive us when we see ourselves and concentrate on ourselves and take our eyes off of you. But as we've been reminded today and throughout this season of the real meaning of Christmas, help us to rejoice in what that means because of the life that we have in your son in whose name we pray, amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net.